Hey, hey, everybody. If you're listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of this episode of The Shift with Doug McKinty. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to the show in order to access the full feature-length versions of the podcast, as well as have access to the members' forum, where we discuss potential topics and interviews and dive deep into the overall concept of The Shift. For only six bucks a month, not only do you get the full-length episodes, but also an opportunity to co-create with me, your host, Doug McKinty, the future of the show. Go to www.theshiftnow.com or patreon.com backslash the shift and sign up today in order to help make the shift possible. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKinty. This episode was recorded on April 20th, 2022. Today on the show, I'm happy to welcome journalist, author, and blogger Ian Davis. After working in health and social care for most of his life, Ian turned his talents towards writing after the events of 9-11 caused him to question the dominant narratives expressed over mainstream media. Coming to the realization that many so-called liberal democracies have been co-opted by powerful upper-class interests, Ian created his blog, In This Together, in order to educate others about the inaccuracies of corporate government narratives, as well as the inequities of political systems characterized by oligarchy. He has since become a contributor to prominent independent news outlets such as 21st Century Wire, The UK Column, Off Guardian, Zero Hedge, The Corbett Report, and Unlimited Hangout. His book, A Dangerous Ideology, published in 2018, discusses how the pejorative conspiracy theory is often used to sideline historical and journalistic narratives that run counter to the mainstream. Not only that, but these interpretations are often depicted as held by a dangerous fringe potentially suffering from psychological issues stemming from antisocial tendencies. After presenting multiple psychological and academic sources to this effect, He then presents statistics showing that a large proportion of the population actually believes that at least some conspiracy theories are true. Fearing for the future of a democracy where so many voters appear afflicted by insane misinformation, Ian painstakingly details alternative narratives of both 9-11 in the U.S. and the 7-7 bombings in the U.K. in search of evidence supporting such derangement. Ultimately, he concludes that a rational, critical-thinking mind could, in fact, question dominant narratives given easily accessible facts that appear to simply have no place within the context of the official government story. One comes away from the book wondering just who holds a dangerous ideology. Is it the conspiracy theorist who backs their narrative with facts on the ground, or the statist dogmatist who clings to government narratives, no matter how outlandish they are eventually exposed to be? This conversation also includes a discussion about one of Ian's recent essays, Democracy is Dead, Long Live Democracy, in which he hearkens back to the original Greek version of a government truly in service to the people. Considering that so many have lost faith in government narratives concerning major political events of the modern day, it is no doubt time to revisit these fundamental concepts about what it means to live in a free society. Perhaps governance truly of the people, by the people, and for the people is just the solution we need to regain trust in government narratives that seem so often to lead us astray. If you're interested in discovering more about the views of Ian Davis or pick up a copy of the book, 
go to www.inthistogether.com. As always, if you like what you're hearing, please like, subscribe, and share this interview across your favorite social media platforms. We rely on listeners like you to distribute this alternative information. To find out more about The Shift, sign up for the newsletter or subscribe for feature-length episodes of each show. Go to www.theshiftnow.com. You can join the conversation by following Doug McKinty on Facebook or at McKinty on Twitter. Without further ado, I'd like to thank author and journalist Ian Davis for agreeing to this interview, and thank you for helping to make the shift. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this, the 118th episode of The Shift. Today, I'm happy to welcome uh, author and activist Ian Davis onto the program. His book, uh, written a few, a few years ago, A Dangerous Ideology, uh, goes into... Oh, I mean, we'll get into it, but talks about uh, what what is basically what is conspiracy theory? Why is it so often uh, just discounted um, and exactly how you can really discern the difference between, uh, you know, what is true, what is not true, uh, how to do good research, how to do critical thinking. And then he applies these ideas to things like 9-11 and the 7-7 bombings in England. So. Uh, he's also just recently written an essay called Democracy is Dead, Long Live Democracy, and I'm hoping to get into kind of a deep conversation a little bit about, about political philosophy and what it is and what's really going on in the world. So thanks for coming on the show, Ian. Uh, glad to have you. Do you want to just introduce yourself to my audience real quick and then we'll kick it in? Well, thanks very much for having me, Doug. Um, I think you've done a great job there of introducing me. I don't really have much more to add to that. Um, I'm sure at the end we can go over where people can find my find my work. So um, yeah, no, I mean I'm just I'm just a, um, as you said, a writer, researcher, journalist, um, just trying to get the uh, information out there, and I think that's the most important thing. So am I am I right? A dangerous ideology did it come out about 2017, 2018. Uh, I think so. I think right. so. I had, I had to actually reread it to remember. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well, but yeah, no, I think yeah, it was about then. Yeah, I was fascinated by it, and and I recall around that time period as well. Of course, all these ideas started coming out. Well, we we get the the fake news meme, and then it started coming out that you know, well, conspiracy theorists just have confirmation bias. They just have co- cognitive dissonance. They're they're not using critical thinking. Clearly, the mainstream media narrative is the truth. And and since that time, I mean, it's progressed into full on outright censorship of alternative ideas. Um, and it was interesting actually to read the first part of the book because I was like, you were you were almost hammering on the conspiracy theorists. Well, aren't these people just crazy people? I mean, you know, wh- why uh, why shouldn't why should we listen to crazy people? What's going on here? So um, why don't you just get into these ideas of, of confirmation bias of cognitive dissonance and why you started the book with these ideas um, and, and then went on to describe uh, your, your perception of events, uh, of these big events, 9-11 and 7-7? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it was around that time. I think it was early 2017, around that time that I started writing it. And that was when the uh, fake news meme was being very sort of heavily promoted mm-hmm. um by by people like donald trump but also against um people like donald trump you know so so it was um a prevalent discussion point at the time and i wanted to uh, address really the perception that was portrayed 
about so-called conspiracy theorists and about um, you know the 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 public the public perception of that term. Now, I mean, we can obviously talk about you know where the term actually comes from and who weaponized it and so forth. Mm. And, you know, we can look at CIA documents for that. But but um, nonetheless, I thought it was important to point out. And, and, and why I started the book in the way that I did was to try to reach an audience that to, to understand their perspective. You know, that I, that, you know, say so that, you know, from, from a, a person who predominantly consumes mainstream media and mainstream political talking points, I could understand why they would consider anybody that's questioning those for want of a better expression, official narratives, um, why they would think that these people were balmy. Because that is very much the way that that such voices were portrayed. Uh, And I noticed that how people could become a balmy, you know, in one instance, they're, you know, learned scholars. But then if they say the wrong thing, they become crazy conspiracy theorists. So, you know, even people like Noam Chomsky and people like that who were, you know, uh, uh, lauded for their for their academic uh, skills. And then and then if they say the wrong thing, then they've just become another crazy conspiracy theorist. So how how do we address that? Well, we don't we can't address that as people that might be questioning the, the official narrative by simply attacking the opposing view we need to sort of reach out and try to understand what that opposing view is where it comes from and then hopefully offer some sort of discourse to um you know discuss that and to suggest that perhaps you know people might think about things in a slightly different way and that was the intention of the book so that's why the first part of it seems to be as you said very much in keeping with what we might call the official account of what does or does not constitute a conspiracy theorist. But the, but the thing that I wanted to point out was that, that these this is a label. This is a linguistic label that is just slapped on a group of people. That those people, you know, it, when you start looking at the data, and I was particularly interested in there's, a, there's a, a, an Oxford-based um, uh, group of academics uh, with people like Professor Drocken and people like that who are part of this thing called the Conspiracy Theorist Research Project or the Conspiracy Theory Re- Research Project, who very much are basing their arguments upon the idea that the people that they label as conspiracy theorists have got psychological problems. They've, they've either got psychological or social, social or political problems, and they're inventing their angst about being, for example, disenfranchised from the political sphere because they don't see the argument that that people like Drocken and so forth present is that these people don't have a voice in mainstream mainstream politics and therefore they feel disenfranchised and therefore they invent narratives to explain their, their lack of agency in a political sense. All of that research, if you, if you look at that psychological research, which, which you know, the, this Oxford group are particularly heavy in promoting, people like Michael Shermer and people like that are heavy in promoting this kind of narrative. If you look at that, it's all based on one core premise that they don't ever address. 
So the, the assumption is, and it is an assumption, is that what these people that they call conspiracy theorists are talking about, that, that the arguments that these people present have no basis. That, that is their fundamental assumption. So I used an analogy in the book, I think, about, you know, if, if, you, were in, if you were trying to understand why seagulls nest on cliffs, but excluded their ability to fly, you would, you would automatically assume that seagulls were crazy. But and, and what that and what they what these psychological researchers have done is assume that there is no basis for the arguments that that whether they genuinely believe it or not, but they they this is what they say, they assume that automatically that there is no basis for what the conspiracy so-called conspiracy theorists are arguing. Therefore, everything they believe is delusional. Well, that is not a proven fact. Because the only way that you can prove that or come to the conclude or come to that conclusion is if you investigate the evidence. And that is the one thing that none of these psychologists and none of these learned academics who pontificate about how crazy the conspiracy theorists are, that is the one thing that they never do. They start from a flawed assumption. They start from the, their starting point is that whatever these people say is delusional, but they never prove or never even investigate that what they are saying is in fact delusional. And from there, their whole argument is, well, it's fundamentally flawed from the beginning because they're not looking at the evidence. Right. So what I was trying to suggest in the book is that forget about the labels, forget about the fact that someone that you know might be called a conspiracy theorist or you might have been told that what they believe is a conspiracy theory forget that just look at the evidence what is the evidence and, and for, on both sides on, on on all sides of of any issue what is the evidence and so i therefore went through in as as examples 911 and 77 to look at the evidence. What does the evidence tell you? Now, hopefully, the idea of constructing the book in the way that I did, um, you know, someone would would perhaps have their beliefs about what a conspiracy theorist is or isn't at the beginning of the book, and I and I may have confirmed some of their preconceptions or seemingly confirmed some of their preconceptions at the start of the book, but hopefully as they progress through the book. The idea, obviously, is to challenge some of those some of those preconceptions. Yeah, it's just it's fascinating. I feel like we've gotten into this realm. I, I actually did an entire series called "The Psychology of Lockdown" because I've gotten to a place where I'm realizing that this is a psychological battle more than it is a logical battle. Unfortunately, because as someone who's spent years. Uh, trying to use critical thinking to have conversations with people that are so enamored of the mainstream narrative to say, you know, maybe these things are incorrect. Maybe there's uh, other facts, other evidence that presents a different narrative that a rational person might pay attention to. And then finding that it's just like my perspectives are being systematically avoided um, and that people are, in fact, projecting these ideas onto me 
about confirmation bias or cognitive dissonance because I can't get them to see my point of view at all. And there's, you know, one of the things that I I came up with, I used to involve myself in a, like a local listserv just with, within my local community to, to, to see if I could convince just one person, you know, <laughs> like one person that, you know, maybe uh, my perspective wasn't crazy. And I try to explain to them, like, you've set a really low bar for me because all I have to do is show that I'm not insane to have this perspective. I, I'm not trying to, you know, I don't even care. I'm not going to try to change your mind. Like you can think how you want to think, but can I just, you know, posit this notion that based on the evidence that I present that I'm not a crazy person, you know, that a rational critical thinking human being might have a different opinion. And actually it was just amazing that, uh, I don't think I had a single taker. <laughs> like they, they would just come back. And I finally, uh, I had one experience. I'll tell you the story because I'll never forget it. It was about the Syrian conflict. This was probably around uh, 2015, 2016, 2016. And, uh, and there was this primary document that had been released from a FOIA request that showed that, uh, that United States intelligence officials have been messing around in, in the Syrian region and that they had come to the conclusion that there was a potential that what they were doing would in fact create an ISIS type movement. Mm -hmm. And this primary source document said, uh, you know, our, our, um, it was describing how Israel and Saudi Arabia didn't have a problem with that and that we were going to go ahead with this anyway. And it was basically, you know, pretty solid evidence from any critical thinking point of view, a primary source document showing that the United States was involved in doing things that would lead to the creation of ISIS. And I had to post this thing like three times when I was having this, and I was trying to show this person, you know, these, these people on the listserv, is this, this is a primary source document. So am I a crazy person for thinking that, you know, maybe U.S. intelligence has had something to do with the creation of ISIS and they ignored it and ignored it and ignored it. And I kept having to press it. And then finally, this one guy was just like, that, that thing doesn't matter. That just doesn't matter. I'm just going to ignore that. And I was like, well, there's no way you can have a conversation. We're no longer having a rational conversation then. I, I Suddenly, I realized that no amount of rational conversation was going to be able to change these people because they, they, they didn't appear to have the ability to even look at the evidence that was presented. It, it's kind of phenomenal. Yeah, and I, I think that you you mentioned it there. That goes to the heart of cognitive dissonance, doesn't yeah. it? What what is truly is cognitive dissonance? So, right. cog cognitive dissonance is an uncomfortable psychological sensation that we have, and we have opposing opposing, especially when it's ideology. So, if we have a if we have an ideology fixed in our mind, and then we have evidence that contradicts that ideology, that is an an uncomfortable psychological position to be in. Now, one of the, I think, the, the things that is quite ironic about um, so-called conspiracy theorists who are generally just people who are, uh, are they more, I, wouldn't, I don't know whether they're more interested in evidence than, than other, I mean, a lot of people aren't. I mean, there's, there, there are just as many people who get labelled with the, the conspiracy theorist label. Mm -hmm aren't themselves particularly open to new ideas. You know, they're, they're pursuing perhaps 
a kind of worldview that they that they are fixated upon. It's not just you know, and that's that's not just people that uh, are um, using the label of conspiracy theory that do that. There are also, I mean, I've met plenty of people on what we might call the alternative side of the argument that are in exactly the same position and refuse to look at new evidence and or have sure. their ideas challenged. So it's not just not just the other side of the argument, if you see what I mean. But, I mean, I, I was confronted with a very similar situation during the uh, rollout of the COVID-19 vaccines. So I was simply citing the original um, on the CDC's website, on the, on the CDC's um, trial.gov website, the, tri- the original trials of what were then the four prevalent new COVID-19 vaccines because the government, the US government and the British government were saying that all of these vaccines had completed clinical trials. And I was directing people to the actual trials, not not the, not the you know, not the, the, the statements that companies like Pfizer and so forth had made, but the actual trials, the clinical, you know, uh, I think it's NTC, num- da, 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 whatever the number of the trial is. But this is the only place where those trials are, uh, are they're mirrored. The trials are mir- mirrored elsewhere, but this is the only place where they are officially registered. Mm-hmm. And I was sending people directly to those trials and saying, if you read, there are no results posted. There are no results posted for these trials because they have not been completed. It, it says, <laughs> you know, the actual trial document says that there are no results posted. The trials are not complete. So when you're being told that they that they have completed clinical trials, that is provably not true. People are just, just absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I- I'm being vilified. Yeah. I was being vilified for doing this. It's not <laughs> true. It's not true. But I've just shown you the primary evidence. There, there isn't. You can, you can spend all week looking for counter evidence to that, but you won't find any other trial data. This is it. This is the trial data, <laughs> right? And people were just not, not having it because of cognitive dissonance because because often i think the things that we're discussing such as you know you know was 9 11 a a quote unquote false flag terror event was Mm -hmm. 7 7 7 a false flag terror event to ask that of people who are not accustomed to perhaps some of the kind of historical background of what even what a false flag event is to ask them to even contemplate that you are basically asking them to question their entire world view and that's and i think well that's something that we should remember as you know perhaps you know on, on our side of the fence we should perhaps remember that because i think most of us that are probably where you and i are perhaps now have had to go through that to some degree i know that i did i know, sure. I know that following 9-11 I was uncomfortable with it from the start when the buildings collapsed I thought hang on a minute that doesn't you know I mean I I was uncomfortable but up to that point I'd never really questioned any of the thing any of the things that I write about now I'd ne- I hadn't I hadn't got that far I've always been quite politically active but I'd never but I'd never 
I'd never questioned things to that extent. And it was 9-11 that made me think something was deeply, deeply wrong. And then the process that I went through took me years, took me years. And I mean, I, part, I, I more or less forgot about it for, for four or five years. And it wasn't, un, it wasn't until I met my current partner that, I, that, that she actually said, 9-11 is a load of rubbish, you know. I mean, and that, that, that's what got me looking at it, you know, so right. in, in more detail. And, and so that was challenging for me, and I'm sure you may well have been through a, a similar process. So the, the irony that I was talking about earlier is about that we are perhaps, as a, as a, if we are a community of sorts, um, that we are the ones that are suffering from cognitive dissonance. We're actually probably the people that have that have tackled our own cognitive dissonance right. more than perhaps others have. You know, yeah. so so that's that's part of perhaps why we why we think the things that we do. Well, one of the things that you said in the book that really struck me, and and I think our processes are are so similar. It's actually uh, it's great to have this conversation with you, just to you know get some validation because the, it's a difficult process, right? To yeah, to go through. And um, you mentioned this idea about confirmation bias, which is kind of a, a part of cognitive dissonance. If you're stuck in an ideological perspective or or perspective about a certain narrative, then you're gonna you know you can get on the internet and you can f- confirm whatever that bias is pretty easily if that's all you're looking for. So. Uh, And you say in the book, and I thought this was so brilliant, the only way that you can overcome confirmation bias is to is to recognize within yourself that you probably are guilty of some confirmation bias and and have the humility then to look at all points of view and and question your own perspective. You know, really, it's a constant process of personal development when you start to look at the at the world this way. And. I just had this uh, experience right when I, again, that same time period when they started coming out with the fake news and the confirmation bias and the cognitive dissonance, I said to myself, I probably do have some confirmation bias, you know, I'm going to start really looking into it. And I started taking a really deep dive. That was at at the point when I, I, you know, it's funny because I think, as you say, this is a long process. And I went through uh, very similar a few years after 9-11, I was like, you know, when it first happened, I, I it was a kind of a question in my mind, but I went with the mainstream narrative. And then I started hearing that, you know, other people are thinking differently about this. I thought, oh, that's crazy. But I just, I had to check it out. And I started, you know, realizing that false flag events do happen all the time, that there are dozens and dozens of pro- easily provable recorded events. And I started having my questions. But one of the things that I I really couldn't get to, and a lot of people have problems with this, is that the whole mainstream narrative, all the corporate news is all just propaganda. And how how can they all possibly push this same narrative? And so I challenged myself around that period, 2015 or so, 2016, to really do the deep dive into into the mainstream and what were their sources. Like I would take a uh, an InfoWars article and look at their primary sources. And then I'd go to the CNN article, uh, you know, and I'd look at their primary sources. 
And I did this again, kind of using this community listserv as a, as a way to go through it. We'd be posting sources and a lot, most people of course would be posting their mainstream sources. And, and uh, I started just double checking everybody's work basically to see whose primary source material was more accurate. And so, you know, what would the rational person start to feel like? And I started to be amazed uh, at how you will find a hundred articles from a hundred different corporate media sites. They'll all, you know, they all appear to be independently researched by independent investigative journalists, all coming to the same mainstream conclusion. And then what I would find is that uh, all of those articles would simply source the same almost always New York Times or Washington Post article, like you could start to find the the places where these narratives were planted. And then I'd go back to that, that source article and I'd find, you know, how often, for example, it was an anonymous source in the CIA that started the whole thing. You read these Washington Post uh articles and it's like the whole narrative is based well i have this anonymous source in the cia that has said you know and then yep. the narrative comes from there the russiagate narrative was all about these anonymous sources and we endured that for for three years you know just constant russia 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 disinformation this and that and it was like well what is your source for this well you know an intelligence agent an anonymous intelligence agent told me that they know it's all russian disinformation it's like well that's not a really solid primary source i mean i'm sorry but you know anonymous sources can say whatever they want and yet i and i could observe that this narrative would then spread across the entire corporate media landscape. And at that point, I started having to realize that like, my God, this, this beast, this corporate media beast is, is basically centrally controlled from a few information points that really don't source their stuff. It, it was a, it was kind of a next level realization. A lot of times people make that argument. Not every journalist can be part of the conspiracy, you know, and I was like, well, I think these guys are just doing their jobs and they're pushing a narrative that their bosses and their bosses' bosses are telling them to push. And, you know, you can you can clearly see how it works, but people don't fall for it. They see the propaganda everywhere and they think it must be true because everybody's saying it. And uh, it's just a very powerful, powerful force. Yeah. And, I, you know, I mean, I think it was, um, I got, what are they called? Um, Swiss. It's a, it's a they're, they're a very good researchers. A, 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 I can't remember the name of the website now. Swiss something. Right. Um, I mean, they they did a, a sort of kind of investigation into the origin of sources for the for the mainstream media. I mean, we already we already know that. Say, for an example, the US. I think there are now five, aren't they? Since it was it Comcast bought out Disney or whoever, whichever right. way it was. There are now five corporations that control 90% of the US mainstream media. You know, similarly similarly in the UK, I think there are the, the three, three um, main media corporations in the UK that control all 90% of the mainstream media, uh, and that's excluding the BBC, of course, because they're state media, mm -hmm. um, and uh, something like eighty percent of the online media, which surprised me. I, you know, I mean, I thought that perhaps on the online might be a bit more diverse, but no, they, they, they've got eighty percent share of online media consumption as well. So, 
you know, this this is the centralization of authority. And whenever you get the centralization of authority, that exists for a purpose. And it's enable it's to enable those with that authority to be able to control things like news narratives. But what Swiss is it Swiss PR or Swiss media PR? Yes, yeah, Swiss Swiss propaganda research, I think. Um, yes. Yes, swprs.org. I've yeah, those guys do yeah, great work. That's it. Yeah. So they they tracked the Syrian um news reporting to the news agencies. So 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 Reuters or AP or or AFP or whoever would put would put out a news a news story like as just as you were saying in this in this case about Syria mm-hmm. and there would be within those original news agency reports a set of sources or claimed sources like an Iraqi intelligence officer said for example then they trace that through as you just suggested all the national media reports on both sides of the Atlantic and then all the local media reports and what they found was exactly what you've just said you could trace the claimed sources all the way back to these very small number of news agencies. So what what that showed is in, and I think the problem that we get into with the mainstream media is, of course, not all of the mainstream media is completely biased and on on one single agenda. You know, obviously there's a difference between CNN and Fox News, for example. Right. They're not they're not speaking with the same voice, but they are on what what we might what could we call it the big issues or the the major issues to a great extent now they might have a different perspective fox have got a different perspective from cnn but they are essentially promoting the same mainstream narrative but from a different perspective so you know there are there are outliers i mean there are there are people you know certainly on fox news during the covid the covid scandemic there were certainly some different different voices on there challenging the narrative they they were very different from what rachel maddow and people like that were pumping out sure but it's still within the agreed boundaries of 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 the narrative so they're never they're never gonna say that the whole thing is just a a psyop you know they're, they're, they're never gonna they're never gonna go there even if the evidence shows that you know they're not they're not going to report that evidence to the republic to the public you know so and that's the problem with that's the problem often when i think with the issues that we we sometimes talk about i mean my you know i, I wrote another book pseudo pandemic about about the, about the pandemic and the main reason that the main reason that i wrote that was because i wanted to more or less catalog the evidence that was not being reported in the mainstream because it was it was abundantly clear to me that most of the people that I know and most of the people in my community who I have to say when I spoke to them they they had their doubts were not being given any any evidence were not being given any information that would enable them to think oh that's interesting I might I might follow that mm-hmm. they weren't be, they weren't even being given it so I'm, so and, and everything that one of the things that I stressed at the beginning of that book is that that everything that I was talking about 
is in the public domain. These are these are public documents. These are these are official statements from, you know, sometimes politicians, some scientists. These are these are scientific papers that have been published, peer-reviewed scientific papers that have been published. You just don't know about them because you're not being told right. about them. That doesn't mean they don't exist. They, you just don't you, you just don't know about them. So you know, and I, and I think that's that's so much part of what I do is just is just trying to to put into the try to increase awareness of information that is freely available in the public domain that anyone can go and look at, and just say here it is, go and look at it, make up your own mind. But unless you, unless people know that, how can they possibly have have a, an opportunity to do that? Right. We come back to the whole idea about informed consent, in, in, for example, with the uh, vaccine rollout. How can anyone have any possible chance of giving their informed consent if they are lied to about the fact that the vaccines that they were taking had not completed any clinical trials? How could, how could, that, how could they possibly give their informed consent? They can't, and so the whole the whole notion of informed consent is a is a ridiculous concept. If you're not going to give people the truth, yeah, I mean it's just oh, it's amazing. You bring up so much there. Uh, I think I want to start with what you were talking about um, just a few minutes ago about the allowable window. You're probably familiar with the concept of the Overton window within this left-right paradigm. You're, you're allowed to have a certain amount of disagreement, but then you're not allowed. And this is something that I've been exploring uh, because I think, quote unquote, conspiracy theory uh, is it comes from this, what I'm starting to call the top down paradigm where you're starting mm -hmm. to see well, the people at the top are, are, they are in fact colluding to create these narratives, to create these uh, well, to create these situations that empower the people at the top of the pyramid. Uh, and then when, but when people, these are the conversations you're not allowed to have. These are the conversations that are outside the Overton window. And so it appears to a lot of people that this left-right paradigm is functioning and you've got MSNBC and Rachel Maddow on one side and you've got Fox News and, and Tucker Carlson on the other side. Um, and and that those are the extremes of the Overton window and anything outside of that, it, you're not allowed to have a discussion from. And then uh, as you were saying, not only can you see that all of these media, uh, these corporate media are part of these six corporations, five or six corporations that control the whole thing, but you can also clearly see that those people collude in these think tanks like the Council on Foreign Relations that all have members from each organization as part of the, the news teams at every, uh, every corporate uh, news outlet. And, and so this is, you can see where and how they push the narrative, but it's just amazing uh, how few people can see it. It's phenomenal. Uh, yeah. And, and that is a, that is a big question. I mean, when you get, when you get uh, obvious, so if you take, for example, the statements of Fauci during COVID that have been reported, you know, on, on all, on all sides of that left, right divide is for example, flip-flopping on, on the the value of face masks. Right. Now obviously if any if you it, 
It, it seems obvious to me that, that his opinions were not coming from a position of science. You know, science, science moves forward all the time. You know, I'm not, and, and science, you know, the scientific opinion changes all the time, but not that quickly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it doesn't, it isn't, it isn't true today, but then false tomorrow. It takes time. You know, that's the, you've got to, you know, there's the scientific method. And, and quite obviously what he was not speaking, for example, on masks, from a position of science. Now, I think you would also, I mean, I, why could nobody see that? I mean, he changed his mind four times in the space of about, you know, a year. So yeah. how could how could people not still imagine that, that what he was saying was based on, quote, science? Obviously, it wasn't. And, then, and it is obviously that it wasn't. But then we then we come back to you know, that problem of, of cognitive dissonance because you're asking people to fundamentally question their belief in, I guess, I guess authority in terms of authority acting as some kind of, you know, within their government, within their particular government, um, the authority acts as some kind of extension of the will of the people or something like that. The, right. the, the authority is they create it in order to be able to manage their society in a fundamentally honest way. But when you have got, which I'm sure is how mo most people kind of envisage how this kind of political authority and, you know, scientific authority and orthodoxy would work. But people often talk about corruption. They often talk about, I mean, it Within the Overton window, it is perfectly acceptable to talk about, for example, the corruption of, of local city hall officials or the corruption at the local planning committee, which, which people almost kind of expect it to be corrupt. It's, it's so common that people kind of expect it. Right. But when you're talking about people at a, a high level, and we come back to that kind of hierarchical top-down top -down structure that yeah. you're talking about, in order to question whether they are in fact corrupt or not then then you start encountering all kinds of problems from a cognitive point of view because then you think well hang on a minute well, then we have a corrupt system and if we have a corrupt system why am i still you know why am i still in, in supporting it why you know so these things are difficult for people i think to address because of the degree to which it undermines how they would like to see the world. And I think that's something that all of us that perhaps are looking at this information would say to anybody that does go down this path that you're not going to like what you find. Right. I, I, I wish, I really wish that I was wrong all the time. Yeah. I really wish I was wrong. I don't want, I don't want the things that, that I write about and the things that I look at to be true. I want them to be wrong. But, but you can't just look away yeah because because something is unpleasant you know you can't you can't do that you, we have to look at things square in the face 
Because otherwise, they'll just continue. You are listening to this. You are listening to the first free hour of The Shift with Doug McKinty. For access to the full feature-length versions of the podcast, go to www.theshiftnow.com and subscribe for the audio version for just $6 a month. Access the full-length episodes in video form through rockfin.com by subscribing at the Shift with Doug McKinty landing page. For $9.99 a month, you gain access not only to The Shift, but also all other premium content material hosted on the platform. Find out more at www.theshiftnow.com backslash store. Detoxify your body, decolonize your mind, make the shift. We frame it just because of the way you describe representative democracy as basically inevitably uh, collapsing into an oligarchy. I mean, there's all, there's no way... I mean, even the concept of representative democracy is that just a few people become the ones who do the voting, not not the polis, not the the people. Um, and and certainly, once you set up this kind of representative democracy, then the then the possibility of corruption is just massive because it's easy mm. to to uh, to bribe or otherwise corrupt the few people that are your quote unquote representatives. So yeah, why don't you just set it up with that difference between representative democracy and true democracy, and we'll get into it. Yeah, so so as you just said, I mean, that re- representative democracy in and of itself is not necessarily a bad idea. I mean, you can have there are different there are different versions of it. That, you know, for example, you've got in the in America, you've got a federal republic. We've got a, a constitutional monarchy. There are diff- there are different types of frameworks within which representative democracy can sit in, and the idea of government of the people, by the people, and for the people. You know that that is. That is a, a a noble aspiration. There's nothing. There's nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, as you just said, is that what you are doing is you are investing authority in a tiny group of people. Now, if those people are all honourable and are all honest and are all uh, willing to serve the people, and they go into it with totally noble from a totally noble point of view and that they're going into it in an egalitarian mindset and they're really thinking about how they're going to serve people, then then brilliant. So it it could work. But as we've just been talking about, just even you and I, even our own human nature is is so flawed that if you are going to invest so much power in this tiny group of people, inevitably what it means is a corrupt system. And that is unfortunately because of human nature. It, it, it is. It is. It, there are, will always be t- people who seek to rule others, and a representative democratic system is a perfect vehicle right. to enable as, to enable them to do that. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's why where we are, in my view, that's what that's why we've ended up with people with this top-down, compartmentalised, hierarchical structure telling us, ruling our lives. And that's the point, ruling our lives. So we think we're electing someone to represent our views. But how, how many people can honestly say that they have ever elected someone on a, on a, on a certain manifesto, that this, the, the person has presented this, the individual has presented their manifesto to you and you've elected them on the strength of that manifesto and then they have then gone into office and delivered it. Right. <laughs> I, I've been having this revelation lately about this concept of real politic. I mean, that's a term, right? And it means the real yeah. politics that actually happen. 
as opposed to what, you know, what these guys campaign on, which is fake politics, right? None of it's ever actually, they don't actually get into office and then argue, you know, political philosophy. They get into office and then they start pushing money around to the, to the rich guys that, you know, funded their campaigns. (laughs) That's real politic. (laughs) Yeah, that's real. So yeah, real politic is just, is just, is just just looking at it from just a Machiavellian, just kind of like hard nose, hard nose distribution of power that's what (laughs) and that's what it is that's what it really is (laughs) yeah that's what it is that's what we've got Um, but we call it democracy but that's not that's not what democracy means yeah democracy so people often when they look at the history of democracy they they often talk about solon and the the, and so so solon's recommend sort of uh uh transition that he made to sort of kind of give the people a bit more power this was in the sort of 7th century bc mm-hmm. that he in in athens to sort of give the people more more influence over their elected leaders but shortly after there was still they still had a problem in athens at the time with with tyrants tyrants was because they had a kind of representative democratic system and tyrants were able to exploit that and they were so shortly after Solon came, I think they overlapped a bit actually, but um, he was an old guy when Cleisthenes was born. So this guy Cleisthenes, he was born, and he and he changed that system fundamentally. What he did was he said that the the legislator, so uh, in the US you might have Congress, they they would they would be selected from the people using something called sortition. Which would be a random, a random selection of the people. So he might pick five hundred people to form what he called a bull, which was the legislator that would that would create legislation, right? So they would create the laws. So they would cr- put forward an idea for a law. He then said that another separate group of people, which he called an ecclesia, this the assembly, which would also be chosen by sortition. So you might choose. 1500 people or or a thousand people at random from the population they would then form the assembly that would pass for so in the we might call that the parliament you know in in the uk that would be parliament so we've got Mm -hmm. the executive which is the ball who who propose legislation and then you've got an assembly or a parliament or whatever you want to call it that deliberates on that legislation and decides whether to pass it reject it or amend it but the crucial thing that Cleisthenes did was that he also said that the courts, the dicasteria, the, the, the courts, would ultimately have the power to overrule and annul all legislation. So what this meant was that the people that were in the courts, if a um, piece of legislation, so, so law, so the, the bull might have created a law and the ecclesias passed it, if a piece of legislation came in front of them and someone was accused of a crime under that law and the court didn't think that the person was guilty of any causing any harm i.e. they weren't they weren't didn't have what you might call mens rea they weren't they didn't have a guilty mind they weren't trying to harm anybody they weren't trying to cause anyone any loss but they just happened to fall foul of a law Right. Then the dicasteria, the, the jury in the dicasteria, which was chosen again, random sortition, no picking of juries, just random people. 
the dicasteria could could say, well, in this case, this proves that this law needs to be thought about again because this person, the accused or the defendant, is technically guilty, but they're not guilty in their mind. They, they haven't done anything to harm anyone. So the problem is not with them. The problem is with the law. Therefore, we annul it. We, we, it's gone. Mm-hmm. We, we're getting rid of the law. You... The ball and the dicast and the and the ecclesia has to go back to them, and you have to rethink it because we can't have people prosecuted for something when they're not guilty of any kind of of any kind of criminal intent. So, through this system that Pleistocene's created, what he created was a rule of law without any rulers. So there was no that government as such. What what there was was governance via trial by jury yeah so i you know i suggest in the in the article that this is something that we could operate on a national scale there's no reason why this couldn't operate on a national scale now the key thing about sortition about how choosing the people that would form the the legislative group the ball and the assembly the ecclesia is that it didn't invest authority in anyone for very long. You know, you would just it would just be a group of people that would deliberate an issue who were temporarily invested in authority with some authority. But then once their deliberations were over, once they decided what they thought the legislation could should be or not, they would then go back to their normal lives, just like we do when we're selected for a jury. So you would be temporarily given this incredible responsibility and this incredible authority. And then when it's over, you just go back to your normal life. Well, the big advantage that has over a representative democratic system is that, you know, multinational corporations and corrupt banks and people like that who want to influence influence decision making by corrupting or people that are in permanently invested in authority, or people that have it for four or five years, mm-hmm. is that they, they won't be able to do that because they won't know who to corrupt. And even if they try to corrupt and then produce what might be corrupt or oppressive legislation, a court will overthrow it. Uh, any court. So this is another point that that Pleistocene's made. It wasn't just that there were just some courts that could overthrow legislation. Any court could overthrow legislation. So any court anywhere in the land that found that legislation wanting could annul it. So this was genuinely governance by the people. Now, also... You know, it wasn't. You know, it wasn't a fair society in the in the in the modern sense. Ancient Athens. It was. You know, it was male landowners who weren't slaves. They were the only people that could. Right. They were the only people that could be involved in this. But we're not. You know, we've times have changed. Everybody could. Everybody could be involved in it. So that that was why I put it out because I think I think one of the problems that you have when you're trying to suggest no government. To, to people, to most people, is that they fear chaos. They, they, they imagine chaos. They imagine gangs of, of, I don't know, crazy, crazy motorcyclists right. riding around, robbing everybody. But, but, it, but that is not what 
voluntarist or anarchist thinking leads us towards what what it leads us towards is an idea of individual personal responsibility which could be exercised through a system of rules so we could still have rules and we could still have order without government government so you'd still it's still possible to have those protections certainly within if we went down a kind of anarcho-capitalist kind of idea of genuine free markets which we haven't got we never had a genuine free market there's no such thing but if 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 we did then you know as we spoke earlier about the idea about the way that ideas might flourish well the same could be said about business and the same could be said about the way that the way that we interact our, our voluntary exchanges the, everything everything human ingenuity itself could flourish under such a system which isn't centrally controlled yeah and that's what i was trying to present in there yeah the idea and it's an old idea it's, it's an idea that is thousands of years old right no i thought it was brilliantly done actually and and um i just i wasn't even that familiar with that i kind of I've studied some Greek history around the period of Socrates, which is a few hundred years later, but I didn't know that, you know, the real origins of the democratic process and how it worked in ancient Greece. So uh, definitely appreciated the piece and uh, would recommend it to anyone who's just curious about alternative systems that can really decentralize power and really focus on the corruption issue that I think, I mean, that's what's, you know, as you and I were discussing earlier, has is so mind-boggling that so few people seem to be able to perceive what I can only see as a mountain of corruption at the top of the system. I mean, these guys like Dr. Fauci or anybody that's made it to the to the top of the political system has clearly been uh you know infiltrated. Their ideals have been infiltrated by <laughs> you know, corporate influence or wealthy influence or, or from a variety of, I mean, we have, you know, lobbying, which is just legalized bribery. It always boggles my mind when, you know, we all see this right in front of our faces and nobody, it's like, it's been so normalized uh, that people don't even see the corruption that's right in front of their faces. So setting up some kind of systems where we can really have a check and balance against this corrupting influence of the upper classes uh, is crucial. And then the idea of the jury, which can annul anything that even gets through the, the cracks uh, of, a, of a purely democratic system, um, it, it's just brilliant. Again, the, the checks and balances that kind of keep, uh, that, that keep the corrupting influence out of uh, politics, uh, keep the authoritarianism out of the political game. Um, so, yeah, and I, mean, I think that the, the, the key thing is that Clive the Scenes was trying to put through, and that other people have kind of suggested since then, was that, that the point of democracy is to deliver justice. So, it's not, it's not to deliver um, any kind of political advantage, it is purely to deliver justice. So what is justice? Well, justice is, you know, basically it's it's the uh, the the writing of wrongs under what we might call some people call natural law, some yeah. people call God's law, whatever that you know. Most people understand what is a just or unjust situation. So if we look, for example, at the pharmaceutical corporations' ability to lobby government, and I think if you and to, and to 
to get government to pass legislation in their favour at the expense of the public often. Most people that would look at that would, if you said to most people, is that it, they wouldn't have a problem if saying, is that just or is that unjust? Most people would just pretty, oh, it's unjust. You know, they, it wouldn't it wouldn't be difficult. Yeah. And, and I think one of the strange things I've encountered with some of the people that have responded to that article are the, are the, are the debates and arguments that I've had about people saying, well, how do you define what is right and wrong? Like, like are we really, have we gone so far down the, well, I would say, solipsistic path, yeah. path moral relativism? Yeah. We've gone so far down that path that we're questioning in our own minds what is right and what is wrong. I think, you know, there are, of course, there are very complex, very complex issues, which are very, case in point at the moment, we've got what's happening in Ukraine. It is not immediately apparent what is right and what is wrong in terms of the, in terms of the um, yeah. dynamic, dynamics of that conflict. So it, it's not it's not always easy, but I think as individuals, when we're talking about our relationship with other human beings and the world around us, other living creatures and the environment, we all know what right and wrong is. We all we all know when we're acting honourably and when we're not. Of course, some people don't. Some people have got psychological problems and and, and mood disorders and and so forth, and it, they don't know, but they. But the reason they don't know is because they have got a problem, often a, often a medical problem yeah. or a psychological imbalance. But most rational people, we can, and I think one thing that we have to learn again is that we can trust each other. We can trust each other. We're not, most people that I've ever met in my life, I don't think I've rarely met anyone that I thought wanted to harm me. I just, yeah. I just, I don't, I can't. Maybe one, one or two people, but you know, right. one or two. <laughs> but, but you know, you know. Unless, I mean, I'm not talking about having a punch up after after a boozy night out when you're a teenager. I mean, that happens to everyone, right? <laughs> sure. But I mean, but I mean, I'm I'm talking about in as an adult when you're when you're talking about people on a sort of uh, on an adult level. Who who have we ever met that really wanted to harm us? People can get to that position through our behaviour. We might have annoyed someone <laughs> so much that they do want to harm us. But, you know, generally speaking, people don't want to harm each other. But most people want to live their lives. You know, they want their families to, to look after their families. They want their children to succeed in life. That's what people want. They don't yeah. want war. They don't want some bureaucrat telling them that they're not allowed to go out. Right. It's It's... We don't yeah. have to live like that. I actually think it's amazing the links that uh, I think the upper classes need to go to, including the propaganda, the control of the mainstream media, to push these fear narratives, to get people to distrust each other, to push the left-right paradigm, to get people to fight each other about politics all the time, to, to get people to be scared enough to go into lockdown over a virus, maybe a few people got sick. You know, it, clearly, I mean, I, I honestly, I only had a few people that 
had a influenza-like illness over the last couple of years, yet my whole life was transformed because of fear or even the war, fear in the the Ukraine. You know, Putin's a, an evil dictator who's just trying to expand an empire, scares people. And this is what it takes. They go to great lengths because you're exactly right. The, the natural human impulse is to live and let live and, and, uh, and be at the, at the end of the day, morally good. Um, I think this concept of natural law is so important for exactly the reasons that you stated, um, because it does overcome the, the, this idea of, of moral relativity, that anything goes. I've been doing some writing about it recently, um, because one of the things that I've noticed, the left-right paradigm actually breaks down. If you see the left-right paradigm is beginning with Hegel and Marx and their conflict about historical dialectics. Um, as someone who's always been attracted to libertarianism, I've been thinking about this quite a bit. I, I've always, you know, is libertarianism far right, you know, or is national socialism far right? Because I'm the farthest thing from a Nazi, as far as I can tell. So the left-right paradigms never made sense because my belief system never fit into it. And then uh, as I you know, as I studied a little bit of political philosophy, I realized that prior to Hegel, you've got all these philosophers like John Locke and others who are discussing things from this natural law perspective. And it's a totally different paradigm. It's not part of the left-right paradigm. It is the paradigm that drove the, the democratic ideals all the way back to ancient Greece, just like you're talking about. Um, um, but it's a different way of thinking about things. Um, and, and I hope that more and more people can kind of take it to heart. There's this thing called natural law, and it it transcends our own individual perspectives. Mm. And if we live in harmony with it, then that is the definition of, of virtue. And when somebody breaks natural law, then we need to apply justice. <laughs> I mean, and we yeah. should be having conversations about these things, like what is moral virtue and what is justice? And I think a lot of, I mean, these are the conversations that were happening in political circles at the end of the uh, 18th century, around the time of the American revolutions and the, even the French revolutions. And, you know, people were having these conversations. And now in the, in the dialectic universe, uh, we're all just part of these historical forces and all of, it's not about virtue or justice. It's just is what it is because, we're in this capitalist phase now, and soon will the communist revolution will come, you know, or. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no I mean, definition of the end of history. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's one of the things when we talk about, you know, things like rights, isn't it? So who do you, I mean, one of the questions right. that often, often get is who, what, who defines what is a right? Well, if we get into the position where human beings are defining what is a right, then very quickly we get into and that's authority, isn't it? That's, yeah. that's someone saying. You know, I, I say that this is your right, but this is not your right. And the whole point of natural law and looking at things from a natural law perspective is that we don't define what is right and wrong. It's not up to us as human beings to define what is right and what is wrong. Yeah, We, just, we can come to understand what is right and what is wrong, but even if we didn't exist, it wouldn't change what was right and what is wrong. It, it's it's eternal. It goes on forever. It's, it is... It is it is the nature of it is balance in the universe. It's the you know it's it, right. it is it just is, and I think that's the point. It just is. So 
we can come to understand that. As Spooner, you know, would, would say that we can, we can come to understand it because it is a system that we can we can perceive through reason, and and it is in our nature to you know one of the advantages of being our, our evolutionary advantage, if you like, is that we are creatures of of reason. So we can we can come to understand it, and you know if you do, it's it's fairly obvious what it boils down to, and what it boils down to is that thing of not causing harm. None of us have the right. I mean, I always I always kind of think that I define personally. I see inalienable rights as being the right to do anything that does not cause harm or loss to others. So. And that includes to myself as well. You know, if I if I am if I am abusing myself, and that and and in doing so, I am impacting upon the life of my family. Mm. You know, I'm ruining their life by abusing myself. Then, yeah, then that's not that's not a right. I don't have that right either. But I mean, if I'm not, I can abuse myself as much as I like. If I'm not harming anybody else, right. and that's and that's and that's what it what it boils down to i think and it and and if we can look at, at how we can apply that in our lives i mean one of the things i would i, I something else I've, I've sort of written about as well is that we already do it's not like we don't do this most of us understand we have like kind of an internal sense of propriety you could call it that if you like that that we don't go around i mean people don't walk around the streets punching old ladies in the face right we don't do that we don't do it not because it's illegal i mean this is one of the crazy arguments isn't it that we say that if if it if it was not illegal suddenly we would start doing that yeah right right <laughs> so we would start just just smashing through shop windows and taking everything out of the front of the shop why what what makes people think that that they would start doing that? We don't do it now, and sure, there might be some people that if you know there was no authority, quote unquote authority, might take it upon themselves to do that. But think about it this way: if there's no authority, also people are at liberty to defend themselves, which they're not at liberty to do really at the moment due to authority. Yeah. So change the i mean it's the old adage isn't it about what 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 it was really like in the west the white the wild west where you know actually crime rates were pretty low in the west because everyone was armed right <laughs> <laughs> so you, know, you didn't you didn't get the bar the, the idea of the western bar brawl is a bit of a mythology because it was a that was a pretty dangerous <laughs> that was a pretty dangerous thing to get yourself into so people didn't do it generally you know so i mean but that not that I'm advocating that everybody is violent, you know. Yeah. But 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 nonetheless, there is an order that there is a there is a natural order that we can all come to understand and live by. Yeah. And and we do we do ninety ninety 90% of the time we already do. You know, I think it's an important distinction. I've thought about this too. That this kind of freedom really is it it is what exists like this is the real world like it takes a, a powerful belief system in authority to make authority to allow authority to even have power to to allow these guys to have the control over us takes a large portion of the population to believe that they should or do have control over us i mean because in reality 
I agree with you. There's these inalienable rights and there's a natural law that's actually at work. And, and it's only in the minds of so many uh, that believe in this authority, the, the authority of Dr. Fauci to tell them what science is or, you know, the authority of the mainstream media to tell them what's really going on in the Ukraine or elsewhere. Um that allows these people to have this control. It's it's more, it's so much of just a belief system. And if people could start to, you know, kind of wake up to living in harmony with the idea of natural law, then I think the rest of it might just go away, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. What a, what a dream. That would yeah. Be. <laughs> true, true. Not to be too utopian about things, but. Yeah. I mean, um, I think, you know, I mean, I think any, whenever you get a group of human beings together, you know, I mean, I'm I'm going to a wedding soon, and I I'm filled with dread. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> because whenever you get a big group of human beings together, you know, there's people there that might want to talk to each other and all that kind of stuff. You know, but we can none we can nonetheless manage these situations without everything breaking down into chaos, and we can also manage these situations without somebody telling us how we need to manage these situations. Right. You know, we we don't. We don't need that. We never have. I mean, I think I think the you know if we look at things like any kind of commercial activity, when we think about how commercial activity works in in the real world, in reality, what you were talking about there. I mean, it's only really, how are the government involved in that? They're only involved in it in terms of taxing and regulation. Yeah. But but all you know, there's there are global networks of of supply chains, or they used to be until the government. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> they used to be, but nonetheless, you know, there are global networks of supply chains that work when with, with nobody nobody is being compelled to do anything anywhere along that along that that supply chain, yeah. and we operate the entire planet <laughs> on in that way. So the only thing that that the authority serves really in that in that situation, it, it's it's an impediment to, as it always is, I would I would suggest, but it is an impediment to, uh, you know, like effective effective commerce and and so on. It's not it doesn't it's not an aid in any way really. Yeah. And through the mechanism through that mechanism what do we introduce into those markets through the mechanism of regulation we introduce corruption into those markets right so so that's you know i, I we clearly if we look at what is happening and what's coming down the road in terms of what we might call the great reset or whatever um you know we're facing we're facing a as you said, a global technocracy that is going to control us and control our markets, control our business, control us, you know, what we what we do, where we go. I mean, if we have CBDC, you might not even be able to leave the end of your road. Yeah. You know, so, you know, we, we've got a choice. We have got a choice. We can either accept this. And I'm, I'm somebody was talking to me the other day and I'm saying about how do we defeat it? Yeah, this is the question. See, I, I, this is what I, I don't think we can defeat it, as in fight it and defeat it. Yeah, I think by 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 standing up and fighting it and opposing it, we are bound to lose because we've stepped into the ring with a with an opponent who has not only owns the ring, they they've got you know a ten foot tall kickboxer stood over the other side. Right. So so so. 
we mustn't play their game. That's that's how we, we don't defeat it. We circumnavigate it. I think yeah. is 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 the way that we we are going to survive this. I mean, I'm not don't mean that in a dramatic sense. I mean, as in so survive it as you know on a generational generational perspective. So so that's what we're going to have to do. I yeah. mean, we're gonna we're going to have to create parallel systems. We're going to have to cr- learn to live learn to live as best as we can within the system we've got. And it's not an all or nothing thing either. I think people just, just think that, you know, oh, we've well, either got to stand up to tyranny or you're a shill or whatever. No, right. you've, you've still got to live your life. You know, they're going to impose all these horrible things on us. We've still got to somehow manage to live within that. But all the, but if we do so, if we do so, always focusing on how we can live a better life how we can live a better life how we can improve our lot how we can improve our situation right. regardless regardless of what they're saying or doing then you know hopefully we can we can get through this and move on to something better yeah i'm right there with you i mean i'd like to see some sort of mass political movement i mean as you mentioned in your book actually there's way more conspiracy theorists out there than they would have you believe. Mm. And if somehow, you know, we could all get together and and maybe have some kind of political, you know, political movement that confronts this, uh, I would be happy to see that. I do some work in that direction, you know? I mean, I like to try to convince people to maybe at least recognize what's going on and see if there can be some kind of organization. But uh, us us free thinkers have a tendency to be real individuals too. It's, it's like herding cats to try to get everybody on the same page on that level. And, and so I also very much so promote this idea of, of parallel systems and just like figure out how to not need what these guys are selling, you know, and, and get outside of it and do your own thing and life will find a way. It always does. Yeah, and I think uh, you know we need to throw everything at this, and that includes you know all 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 lawful and all peaceable means need to be thrown at, at defending ourselves against what is an attack by the state. And that's what we need to you know we we all we need to do that. You know, so I mean, protests, political movements, um, you know, political parties, even you know, trying to trying to get the best that we can out of what is the representative democratic system. You know. Yeah looking at alternative systems, whatever, whatever we, we, we need to throw everything at it. There is no kind of, no, no one answer, you know, there's no kind of like switch we can flick that's going to save everybody and we or save ourselves even. So, you know, I think, I think it's, 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 I also think there is a tendency to catastrophize as well. And I'm probably guilty of that. Yeah. You know. Sure. Right there with you. You know, that we kind of think, oh, you know, it's all... I mean, going back to what you were saying earlier, why do we have this incessant deluge of propaganda? Well, it's this, obviously, to convince us to think in certain ways. So when when Joe Biden stands up and openly discusses the possibility of a first nuclear strike, what... Are we... Do people think that, 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 you know, people that are around Biden seriously think that they can get away i mean maybe people like john bolton and stuff like that in the past you know that they they're the kind of guys that might think that yeah but but i don't think i don't think that's a serious a serious idea but but what but what does it do 
as you were talking about earlier, it instills everyone with fear. Just to think that, to even contemplate that, you know, it, it, it instills everyone with fear. And then when you're in a state of fear, you seek you seek reassurance. You seek some leader to save you. Exactly. From, from, right? So that's why they use this propaganda. It's to make us think. So that suggests to me that they're actually terrified themselves. They're terrified of losing control of the narrative. That's why they have all these laws that they're, that, you know, that they're bringing out. In the UK, we've got something called the Online Safety Act coming, which is horrendous. Yeah. You know, it's the end of free speech online in the UK. There's, people shouldn't be under any illusions about that. And also, people shouldn't be under any illusions to think that it's going to stop online either. So, you know, it's... It's a very, very draconian piece of legislation. But, you know, there's ways and means. People will get around it. It, it, will, it will happen. And I can't remember who was talking the other day. Somebody was talking the other day that was talking, I think it might have been John Titus, actually. He was talking about this idea that people are stuck in a tunnel and you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, which might be your saviour, your leader, but it actually turns out that it's a train. But as it, get, as it gets near to you, the light illuminates the inside of the tunnel, and then you can see all the escape hatches. And human in human ingenuity, when we face real oppression, as is shown in, in wars and is shown throughout history time and time again, human ingenuity is pretty formidable. And I think that's what they're scared of as well. I think they 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 want to control the narrative to such an extent because they know that if seven plus billion people switch on their ingenuity and start thinking about how to resolve some of these problems, they're gonna, they're gonna, these the people that seek to control us are gonna lose. Yeah. So it's it's all about for that from their perspective, it's all about controlling the narrative through which they can control us. We are the thing that they are frightened of. Right. Absolutely. I mean we've got the numbers, right? I mean if enough exactly. people figure it out it's they're just it's game over for them they they have to rely on this on these psychological tactics to maintain the control because if people stopped believing in the need for their authority then they just wouldn't have it anymore so yeah no absolutely hopefully uh hopefully your work is helping to uh shine the light on some of uh, some of what's going on so people can find those escape hatches but um you know we've been talking for almost 2 hours so we probably ought to wrap it up uh, I could definitely continue for a long time. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm really, I've been excited to find your work. Um, really excited to see, you know, these thoughts that you're having about democracy, these thoughts about politics, looking at it in a different way, um, finding solutions uh, by understanding, you know, how we can really start thinking about, about, about governance uh, in a way that that starts to move beyond this, this left-right paradigm that drives me nuts, uh, and thinking outside the box to find these solutions um, that can really establish, you know, a potential for a future where we don't have this much controlling authoritarianism, you know, influencing our lives and affecting our ability to evolve, really, as human beings. At the end of the day, so do you want to let people know? Yeah, any any finishing comments and and let people know uh, where they can find your stuff yeah i mean i you know i mean one thing i would say is that oh i'm yeah 
as you have you just alluded to, I'm just banging ideas out there. You know, I'm not saying I'm right, and yeah. I'm not. You know, I mean, I never. I, I'm I, like you. I know that I am wrong most of the time. <laughs> you know, so so uh, so. I mean, that's I think life. some. Yeah, that's life, and I think maybe perhaps you know, I'm not saying that I'm wise either, but maybe wisdom is knowing the difference between between thinking that you're right and knowing that you're wrong mostly. <laughs> you know, right. so so. Yeah, so people can find my work at my website, which has got a very annoying URL. It's it's in-this-together.com, which is uh, my own personal website. I also frequently write for um, ukcolumn.org, and that's all one word, UK column. Um, my work shared on places like um, The Off Guardian, um, Blue Rockwell, and people like that. Um, I... Um, I'm very, very fortunate that I occasionally write for um, Whitney Webb's Unlimited Hangout. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, and I, I, you know, I'm very fortunate to have the opportunity to, to speak to people like you, Doug. And, uh, you know, there's a few videos out there as well. So check them out. Um, yeah. And, and, oh, and my books as well. Um, yeah, I've, I've written quite a few books. So I've only, there's only two that are published in, in hardback. Uh, they're all freely available on my website, but that you know you can download the electronic versions for free. There's you know there's, there's, I'm not not selling them. The only thing obviously I have to charge if someone wants to buy a hardback, but that's because it costs money to print it. You know that's, mm-hmm. that's the only reason. Um, yeah, so please come and check my work out. And I'd just like to thank you, Doug, for you know I I was only you know found out about your work a, a few a few weeks ago, and I've been fascinated watching some of your videos. It's been Great. truly excellent discussions, and and uh, I'm Thanks. it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, thanks for coming on. Um, yeah, it is always a pleasure to find other people that are starting to think on the same wavelength. Like, how can we have these conversations that get us out of this left right paradigm? That get us out of these methodologies of control and start thinking outside the box so that we can come up with solutions that maybe can actually, you know, prevent this technocracy from coming down the pike. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think that's, that's the thing as well. We, we all, I think this is really important. We need to think about offering something. We you yeah. can't just, you can't, we can't just oppose everything. Right. We have to, we have to have something to offer. You know, and I don't know what that might be, but I mean, I think we really need to sort of think about that. Paul Kudenek has has written a lot of really good stuff about you know offering uh, and something else, you know, another way of working, another way of living. Yeah, I think it's really true that a lot of times we spend our times fighting the propaganda instead of you know offering up a, a just a new narrative, you know, just offering up a, a new way of looking at things that that really are solutions. Uh, for the future. And it takes so much energy to be constantly debunking the propaganda, but it seems like we're running around in circles doing that so much. So yeah, hopefully things are shifting towards like this essay on democracy. We need to be having these kinds of conversations. What is natural law? What is justice? What is a political system that functions for the people? You know, Um, at least starting these conversations and seeing where they lead, because that's, uh, that's going to be where we find the solutions. All right, Ian, we'll all just let people know that you've been listening to The Shift and I've been your host, Doug McKenty. You can find my stuff at www.theshiftnow.com. Right now, the best place to kind of get in touch with me is if not at the uh, from the website would be uh, Doug McKenty on Facebook. I'm at D McKenty on Twitter, which is a good place to, to get in touch and you can message me there. And uh, so my 
my uh, written stuff is found on Substack now. It's the Populist Papers on Substack, where I am starting to try to write uh, some of this political philosophy out and try to discover some of these solutions. Um, and it's been a great pleasure getting to know Ian's work uh, as well. We seem to be so much on the same page. I'm finding more and more thinkers uh, that are talking, again, how outside of this Overton window and more about uh, different ways of living that maybe can serve humanity a little bit better than getting plugged into the metaverse and, and uh, being forced to spend these CBDCs with our, from our universal basic income allotments that seems to be coming down the pike. So thanks for your work, man. And thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. No, I appreciate it, Mike. Thanks very much. Cheers. Yeah, you bet. Take care. Well, all right, ladies and gentlemen, my conversation with uh, author, blogger, and journalist Ian Davis. Um, what a refreshing conversation that was. Uh, I've been excited lately to, and happy that I've spoken with a few people. We're not only talking about the problems, uh, the problems <laughs> that are happening in the world today, but it seems like we're starting to talk about solutions. Um, I guess getting to the problems first uh, with Ian... Uh, I think a lot of us, all of us, have felt that psychological pressure of being told that we must just be crazy. You know, that the mainstream media, that the governments, these people, they can't be lying to us. There's no way. Uh, the narratives must be true. Uh, and we must just have some kind of crazy, something's wrong with our minds, our perceptions. Uh, when we question that buildings can fall straight down, path of, of most resistance at free fall speed, right into their own footprint, and we question that that was caused by an airplane hitting from the side. We ask questions like, uh, is, where's the airplane at the Pentagon? Uh, where's the airplane in Pennsylvania, in Shanksville, Pennsylvania? What happened to Building 7? Uh, we're just crazy people, right? Um, and Ian, in his book, A Dangerous Ideology, he just confronts that. He says, look, and he quotes uh, the academics, and the psychologists who are saying conspiracy theorists must be crazy, they must be antisocial, they have a paranoia disorder. Um, and he gets into it. You know, if this is, if these people are really this dangerous and this outlandish, and then he goes into some, some percentages, I think it was over 50%, maybe more than that now, that questioned the JFK. Uh, the narrative, the official narrative about the JFK assassination, uh, 27, 30% of people doubting 9-11. I mean, a large proportion of the population, right? And so he's saying, look, do we have a democracy at all if these large swaths of the population are insane, as these academics or these psychologists would say? Um, and first of all, I think, you know, I just want to say this is classic gaslighting. This psychology, and as we discussed in the interview a little bit, the psychology of the situation is just outrageous. I mean, it's just amazing the way you see something with your own eyes, and you've got the mainstream narrative telling you, no, no, you're not seeing that. That's not what's going on. It's, it's this story over here. We're just going to repeat it over and over again, and if you don't believe us, then you must be paranoid. You must be crazy. Uh, and enough people are listening to the mainstream narrative over and over again. They're not uh, questioning what they're being told. And we're dealing with this whole social situation where uh, I think Ian's right to say, is this a functional democracy at all when, let's say, 25% of the population uh, have a completely different version of reality? And when we try to ask questions, we get blown off. Um, 
That was the other thing that he mentions in the book. He discusses this, that that why can't we have a debate about this? Why is it just, you're just a crazy person? Why can't you look at our evidence and come to conclusions that seem reasonable and rational instead of just calling us conspiracy theorists and blowing us off and accusing us of being crazy people? Uh, I think there might be a little bit of projection going on. Again, uh, as many of you know, like I've done this Psychology of Lockdown series, it's, it's gone beyond being a rational conversation that, that healthy, critical thinkers should have, and it's turned into this weird, uh, codependent, psychological uh, situation that's like, you know, why can't we just have conversations like healthy, normal people? Why are we getting bombarded uh, by this propaganda? And a lot of people are believing it, and those who doubt it are being censored and, and pressured and even being called insane. Um, and so, you know, that's what motivated Ian to write this book, um, to kind of address that, to say, hey, well, let's see. You know, okay, you're calling, you're calling us crazy. Uh, you're saying that we're antisocial, that we're paranoid, that we have all these psychological problems, so let's just take a look at the evidence. And then he goes through 9-11 and 7-7. And 7-7 I hadn't known that much about, so it was actually really refreshing to kind of get, get the skinny on that one. I had never really done a deep dive. Uh, but if you haven't done a heck of a lot of research into either of these, Ian gives a great overview of just the straight facts uh, in a fairly... Uh, short book, um, and and he really kind of hits all the all the major issues. So um, it's it's great for that as well. Not only this big picture about uh, what's going on psychologically, why are people getting called insane when they have a different opinion, um, but also just outlining the the basic arguments about both 9/11 and the 7/7 bombings, and saying I think that it's okay to question the dominant narrative about this stuff because there's a big mountain of evidence here that suggests that that narrative really doesn't pass muster when you look at it, and at least we should be allowed to have a conversation about it. I mean, these are, again, going into the psychological language, these are red flags uh, that we're dealing with, uh, you know, essentially a very controlling personality type, that we're engaged in a codependent relationship with a government that wants to have control over us, that we're not living in a free society. And so then we segued the conversation from there into this concept of what really is a healthy democracy. And that was, I, I actually really enjoyed this essay as well, Democracy is Dead, Long Live Democracy. Ian gets into some history. I kind of know the history of Greece around Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Alexander the Great period, but he goes a few hundred years before that to the very foundations of the idea of Athenian democracy. And he outlines just exactly what these concepts of, of a direct democracy actually look like, not the representative democracy that we have, that he argues is clearly corruptible, right? We, we sort of elect this representative once every couple of years, and they go off and they can make whatever decisions they want. And a lot of times it, it seems pretty clear those guys are making decisions based on the, the uh, campaign contributions that they're getting from corporations and lobbyists and not actually listening to the will of the people. And because it's not a direct democracy, we don't get a chance to change all of this. Um, so he goes back to the, the initial concepts of ancient Greece, what democracy really is, and says, hey, maybe we should have something like this. A direct democracy with a judicial system that 
that acts as a check. So it's a check and balance system with direct democracy and a judicial system where the jury can still overturn it and say, hey, that law uh, is not in accordance with natural law. It's an unjust law, so we're going to overturn it. Um, and it was, it's a good system. And these are the kinds of conversations I think we need to start having real political solutions. Like, how did we get here? What's going on? Why are we being accused of being insane people? Because we know what we saw with our own eyes. Um, and what do we need to do to get back to a place where we can have rational conversations? And this kind of goes back to my conversation that I had with Joe Atwell a few weeks ago, where we concluded that interview with the discussion of Socratic dialogue. Um, you know, Joe is getting away from this whole idea, <laughs> trying to get away from this whole idea of the left-right paradigm, frankly, where everybody's told they have to pick a side and then we have to duke it out. Uh, in Socratic dialogue, along with this idea of direct democracy, we the people could get together and have a conversation using reason and critical thinking and figure out the best way to move forward as a community, as a society. Um, these ideas exist, right? I mean, we could build a world based on a Western tradition, and I'm happy to talk about other traditions that could function just as well, but here in in the Western tradition, um, we have these solutions, uh, and maybe we should be, those of us who have been raised in that tradition can look to our own uh, ancient past and find out, like, here's what people were doing when things were actually working. Here's systems, here's ideas, uh, the ideas of direct democracy, the ideas of Socratic dialogue, where we can help each other using reason and critical thinking to create a path forward that's transparent, that's psychologically healthy, uh, that's not codependent, where we're all actually working together. Um, and so I'm excited to kind of feel like more and more, uh, more and more people in the scene are starting to talk about solutions. Um, for a long time there, it felt like it was always um, just a backlash, a response. You'd get the corporate government narrative, and then you'd be like, well, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And then do your own research, figure it out, come to your own conclusion, uh, and then try to kind of always be in conflict with this uh, dominant narrative. Um, and instead of chasing them, I think it's time that we start really looking at actual solutions, at least that we can apply in our own communities, right? I mean, people like Derek Bros are talking about agorism and starting parallel systems. Let's just get out of this, you know, corporate system of, of uh, resource extraction and, and uh, production and distribution. And let's just learn how to make our own stuff sustainable, sustainably within our own communities, uh, using our own currencies. You know, figuring it out, using these systems of democracy based on Socratic dialogue and direct, direct democracy. Um, so, you know, all of these things provide a little bit of hope at the end of the tunnel, <laughs> rather than constantly arguing that, uh, well, no, we're not insane. We know what we saw. <laughs> and, uh, and, getting, and just constantly getting in these arguments that seem to go nowhere. Um, just learning how to figure out how to kind of separate ourselves from this whole disaster and, and uh, how to kind of go about maybe setting up parallel systems that could really work for us. So I was happy that, uh, that not only did Ian bring up that, that psychological aspect, um, the emotionally, what I call the emotionally abusive aspect of being 
pretending like uh, someone is insane when they disagree with the corporate narrative, um, but also taking that leap and saying, here are the solutions. Here's how we get beyond that. We have Socratic dialogue with each other. We don't, uh, we don't gaslight, right? We have critical thinking skills. We expose logical fallacies. We help each other to build a better world through direct democracy. These are the kinds of conversations that I'm, I'm starting to have with more and more of my guests. And uh, it gives you a little bit of hope, you know, a little bit of hope that we can we can get through this, especially as more and more uh, all of this technocratic, you know, fourth industrial revolution, great reset stuff seems to be on the horizon, getting ever and ever closer. Um, I think we need to figure out what's our escape route, you know, if we can't stop it at all. Uh, I've been writing a little bit on my blog at the Populist Papers about the idea of populism and thinking that it could potentially be, if we could rally around one particular ism, uh, a kind of a way out, a way to try to fight this, to get outside of the left-right paradigm and build a political movement based on a top-down paradigm. But we don't have a lot of time, and a lot of people are going to have to wake up if we're going to have an actual organized movement that can that can try to uh, try to confront what seems like an inevitability. Um, but again, these philosophical conversations about what real governance could look like uh, in a healthy society uh, can really, I think, help facilitate how we can operate within our communities in the future. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. You can find uh, all of Ian's stuff at www.inthistogether.com with dashes between in and this. So inthistogether.com. Uh, and I urge you to go check it out and, uh, you know, get a copy of the book, A Dangerous Ideology. Um, again, he does a great job of really providing a very succinct and straightforward argument about uh, the alternative narrative for both 9-11 and 7-7. So uh, check that out again in thistogether.com. Next week, I'm having a conversation, another libertarian conversation. I've been trying to do maybe one a month that really focuses on uh, my personal concepts of, of libertarianism, because I think that libertarianism also, like this concept of populism, uh, living in a free society is just that. Uh, I think that if you are left-leaning, and I consider myself a very left libertarian, uh, once you establish the decentralization of power, then we can choose how we want to live, live in a commune, you know? Uh, Start a workers' cooperative. All of these things are great ideas, of course. Um, you know, there's no reason why we're in conflict. Once again, this, this state of perpetual conflict is what's driving me crazy and trying to figure out how to have conversations that can just, you know, can we just get rid of this divisive behavior? So uh, Derek Wills, he wrote a book called The Liberty Solution, and we'll be talking about kind of these classic concepts of what is libertarianism next week. Uh, hope you stay tuned for that. Uh, you can find all of my stuff, including the Populist Papers. Now they're all up uh, under the free content tab at www.theshiftnow.com, uh, and you can check out all of my stuff there, including all of my past episodes. Uh, and if you think about it, if you like what you're hearing, think about subscribing for the full-length uh, episodes of The Shift for just six bucks a month. It's all there under the subscribe tab at www.theshiftnow.com. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. One more week, and uh, I'll see you again next week. Take care.